Hi there. I am so excited to invite you to attend our fourth annual free virtual special education and advocacy conference. We are hosting it here at Ashley Barlow Company in partnership with Rebecca Poe Teaching. And we are so excited for a few new things at this year's conference. The first new thing is that we have not just one, but two different tracks for attendance. For the first time ever, we have created a track that is specific for school staff and teachers. We also still have that traditional track that we intend to be really great for parents and caregivers in the IEP arena. So yes, we have a teacher track and a parent track. On that teacher track, you are going to learn about things like easier data collection, gestalt language processing, behavior reading, and other super hot topics in special education practice, as well as advocacy. On the teacher and caregiver track, you're going to learn about stress management for caregivers using adaptive books, something that I have really kind of um, dove into here at my own house, inclusion advocacy, advocacy strategies, and so, so much more. That free ticket will give you one pass, one access to one presentation per hour on the track that you choose, either that teacher track or the parent track. Of course, if you are not available on January 19th or January 20th when the conference is taking place, you can buy tickets to access the conference on demand. And those tickets, of course, are available at our website, ashleybarlowco.com backslash conference slash 2024. Check out the website for more information about ticketing. This year, we also have something super exciting planned. We have decided to make this a two-day event. When I partnered with Rebecca Poe Teaching, I told her that I really feel like school districts, disability organizations, and other community organizations need to start providing trainings that are accessible to teachers, related service providers, administrators, parents and caregivers, and other community members that are interested in IEP support. What if we all attended the same training? What if we all learned information about special education practice, curriculum, how to read evaluations, that kind of stuff, about special education advocacy, how we can collaborate more, how we can work together, and even about special education laws. What if we all attended those presentations and we workshopped them together? So together with Rebecca Poteaching, I have created the Empowered Workshop Series, and we are excited to bring it to your organization or school in 2024 and beyond. If you are interested in having Rebecca and I bring a workshop to you, you can see a preview of the Empowered Workshops on January 19th, the Friday before our main conference programming. For more information about that, either send me a DM or check out the website, again, ashleybarlowco.com backslash conference dash 2024. We hope to see you January 19th and or January 20th and can't wait to connect with you. Hi everyone, welcome to the Ashley Barlow Company Podcast. I'm Ashley Barlow, your host. If you are a parent, 
A teacher or someone who works at a school, or you're a community member, a volunteer or a staff member at an organization that supports people with special education plans, a coach, a tutor, or even a grandparent, you're in the right place. Sit back with an ice cold glass of lemonade, put on your walking shoes and grab some headphones, roll down the windows and cruise. Ready, set, go. Educate, advocate, collaborate. Welcome back to another episode of Special Education Advocacy with Ashley Barlow. I'm Ashley Barlow and I'm so happy you're here. Friends, I am so excited about today's episode because I started rereading a bunch of my favorite books on leadership in preparation for something that I am hoping to bring to you this fall a weekend mastermind out of town. And what I would like to do with this mastermind is I would really like to talk about special education advocacy from the standpoint of leadership. And so I'm rereading a bunch of my favorite books on leadership, a bunch of my favorite books on negotiation strategy and relationships, because that is what I think I am good at. That is where I really shine it's stuff that I do, quite frankly, somewhat intuitively, but it's something that I love to read about. And so I was sitting on a plane yesterday. I had an entirely different podcast planned and outlined to bring to you today. But as I sat on the plane and I read a paragraph that I'm going to share with you in just a minute, I thought I have to ditch that podcast that I just wrote. I'll give it to you later. And I need to talk about compassion and advocacy this week. I need to talk about it this week because I just got back from the COPA conference. And the COPA conference is one of the most exhausting, inspiring, amazingly um, complicated, fulfilling weekends that I have all year. So COPA, if you don't know about it, stands for Council of Parents, Attorneys, and Advocates. I highly recommend that you join this organization. COPA has numerous websites and does such important work. They get involved in policy work. They write amicus briefs um, for, you know, if somebody has a, what an amicus brief is, if, if somebody has a case um, and there is a national interest or there is a very specific interest. COPA and other organizations will write a brief and ask the court to consider the public interest or the interest of this particular organization, even though they aren't a party to the lawsuit. And COPA will do that on important issues in special education. COPA also has this phenomenal conference every year that is geared towards parents, attorneys, and advocates in special education communities. They do lots and lots of wonderful trainings, some short, some long. They are very well known for their SEAT training, which is a special education advocate training. I have several friends that have done the SEAT um, 2.0 and 3.0 trainings. The 1.0 training I think is also very highly recommended for newer advocates and for attorneys. I don't know anybody that has said that COPA's seat trainings were anything short of spectacular. And so I go to this conference and, and I, I left on Wednesday and I got back on Sunday. 
and it is 24-7 special education advocacy, special education law practice, special education practice management, the business stuff, the social media stuff. And then when we aren't in conferences, we are together going to dinner, having drinks at the bar, taking walks, doing yoga, and talking about our jobs, our clients, how we can do things better. It is totally, totally exhausting. And you know that those um, emojis where your brain is like exploding? My brain explodes like 45 times a day and it is totally on overload right now. And I did a terrible job at documenting all of the things that I went to read and people I wanna connect with and everything um, now that I'm back. <laughs> which I think is secondary to this kind of like post-pandemic brain or um, it's not post-pandemic, whatever kind of brain I have um, that is rewiring um, after a year at home with Jack, educating him um, for remote learning. But I wanted to bring this to you today because I am full of compassion and I am full of excitement with this kind of renewed excitement for my job. And so that's why I thought today I really want to stop and I want to talk about compassion. And this is a really weird take on this. I want to talk about compassion with boundaries. Because the book that I was rereading on the plane is The Gifts of Imperfection. Let go of who you think you're supposed to be and embrace who you are, your guide to a wholehearted life. And this book is by Brene Brown, who is such a famous researcher and coach and thinker in the fields of um, humanity. I don't know if that's what she would say she studies. Um, I, I think that she is famous for um, kind of her work in sociology, which to me is humanity. She's done a lot of work on shame. If you don't know Brene Brown, I highly recommend, and if you're interested in this, I really recommend um, reading her books. And I'll tell you what, I think I've read all of her books. I'm in the middle of um, the most recent one, the, the Atlas of the Heart or whatever that one's called. Um, but it is so wonderful that I'm reading it very slowly so that I can really take it all in because I don't want to get, um, I don't want to lose it. I don't want to lose sight of the things that she's talking about. So the book that I reread on the plane yesterday is called The Gifts of Imperfection. And before I read you just a little snippet from this book, I want to share a story with you that actually happened at COPA. So I was with my friend, um, and we were on our way into a session and we were walking past the vendors. And there was this person that was dressed as Spider-Man. And one of those suits, my kids have each worn these at Halloween. They're those like really tight fitting suits that come over your face. I think they might be called morph suits. Um, and this person was sitting at a table that was promoting their residential day, their residential school, um, and I don't know where it was. I think it was on the East Coast. And so, of course, I took the bait. I wanted their candy, actually. And so I was like, oh, can I have your candy? And then I was like, okay, tell me about why the Spider-Man suit. And you can't even see this person because they're in the suit that covers their face, too. And they said, well, 
I, um, we are residential day, uh, residential school, residential treatment facility, and we, um, treat girls that have this cer certain profile. Um, and what I've told the girls, um, is that, um, Spider-Man didn't know his powers, um, because until he was bitten by a spider and then he got bitten by a spider and he had all these powers and his world became so much more open. And so you might not know what your powers are, but you have to tap into your powers. Now I'm not a comic person. I'm not a movie person. Griffin really liked comics when he was a baby and we read a or little kid and we read a bunch of those books, but I don't really like, I didn't really get that analogy, but what I thought was, this is weird. <laughs> Like, I'm talking to a, an adult in a morph suit. I don't understand what they're talking about, and this is weird. And so I got myself out of the situation. I wasn't rude. I got myself out of the situation. Like, oh, okay, uh-huh, that sounds great. Well, um, you should, like, start climbing up walls. Because I, like, I don't want to talk about that. I didn't, I don't have any people in my office that fit the profile for this school. Otherwise, I might have had some interest. Um, now I know about the school. I've got the materials. I put it in my folder. That's all I need. Like, chop, chop, let's get moving. But I did it in a way that was polite, kind of changed the conversation, and we got out of there. And my friend, we went and sat down in our conference room, and he said to me, he started laughing, and he was like, you are the most politely dismissive person I know. That was hilarious. You were like, yeah, cut to the chase, and that was great. Give me your materials, and let's get out of here. And I was like, yeah, I don't like bullshit. I don't like BS. I saw right through that and I was like, first of all, I don't understand. Second of all, I personally think it's kind of weird. And thirdly, like I'm going to this conference on reading. I'm gonna go here about dyslexia. That's where I was intending to go. I just wanted your candy, get, get out of here. And he said, well, you do it with such Southern charm. This friend of mine lives on the East Coast. And I was like, I mean, maybe that's my thing. Like, maybe that is what I do. I face kind of a hard, a hard issue. Like, I'm not interested. See you later. But I do it in this polite way. And I said, oh, don't you know about the Jackie O PBO? And he's like, no, it's the Jackie O PBO. So Jackie Kennedy, Jackie Onassis, um, did something that she called a polite brush off where she would politely be like, I'm not interested, and then just move on. Just move on. Because truly, and I don't know if this is what she thought, but I have, I have a book, an etiquette book. I love etiquette. I like to read about etiquette. It's very weird. I understand. Um, and I know it's antiquated, and I think a lot of it is quite silly, but I like to read about etiquette. I like to know like how to address an envelope and that sort of thing. Um, and so I have this book called What Would Jackie Do? And in the first couple of pages, it talks about the polite brush off. And the polite brush off is like, yeah, I don't have time for that. And you probably don't wanna waste your time because talking to me about this is a waste of your time. And so very interesting. I'll have to follow up with you on that or something like that. Like, I don't know that kind of, if you say I have to follow up with you, that kind of has a promise of future communication. She would just say I'm not interested and say it politely and move on. And that's what my friend complimented me on. And so when I read this little blurb about compassion and boundaries in this book, The Gifts of Imperfection by Brene Brown, I was like, yes, 
Yes, yes, yes. That's what I tell people about empathy. That's what I tell people about compassion. That's how I operate in my office. And so I want to share this with you. Now, if you get this book, um, there's probably several different iterations of it, you know, hardback, um, large print, etc. But I am, if you're on YouTube, you can look at what mine looks like. Um, and I am in the chapter that is called Courage, Compassion, and Connection, The Gifts of Imperfection. And I'm on page 16. So I'm not, I'm only going to read you like two and a half paragraphs. But it said, I realized that many of the truly committed compassion practitioners were also the most boundary conscious people in the study. Compassionate people are boundaried people. I was stunned. I'm going to say that again. Compassionate people are boundaried people. She goes on to say, here's what I learned. The heart of compassion is really acceptance. The better we are at accepting ourselves and others, the more compassionate we become. Well, it's difficult to accept people when they are hurting us or taking advantage of us or walking all over us. This research has taught me that if we really want to practice compassion, we have to start by setting boundaries and holding people accountable for their behavior. Is that not incredible when we think about special education. I'm going to read you two of those sentences again, and then I'm going to finish up with my reading, and I'm going to tell you my take on this in short about special education advocacy. It says, the heart of compassion is really acceptance. If we really want to practice compassion, we have to start by setting boundaries and holding people accountable for their behavior. Okay, so we are in special education. We are all about compassion and we need to start by setting boundaries. I'm gonna read you one last sentence. There's a little blurb in between this, okay? Actually, let me just read you this whole paragraph. We live in a blame culture. We want to know whose fault it is and how they're going to pay. In our personal, social, and political worlds, we do a lot of screaming and finger pointing, but we rarely hold people accountable. How could we? We're so exhausted from ranting and raving that we don't have the energy to develop meaningful consequences and to enforce them. From Washington, D.C. and Wall Street to our own schools and homes, she, she specifically references schools. From Washington, D.C. and Wall Street to our own schools and homes, I think this rage, blame, too tired and busy to follow through mindset is why we're so heavy on self-righteous anger and so low on compassion. She calls it a rage blame, too tired and busy to follow through mindset. Yes, 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 and yes. Let's tease this out a little bit. So let's start with that quote, rage, blame, too tired and busy to follow through mindset. This is why we are so heavy on self-righteous anger and so low on compassion. Now I'm going to tell you a story that didn't happen at this past COPA conference. It happened a couple of years ago. So I'm sitting at a table of people. Some of the people I knew, some of the people I didn't. And, you know, I'm like, I, I, I think, I think this started with kind of like a get to know you thing, like, oh, tell me, people are always like, what state are you in? Um, you know, what do you do? 
And the reason people say that is because there are a lot of people that are like really heavily involved in the um, in the dyslexia community, or there are people that work for state protection and advocacies, um, which in your office might be your disability rights or in your state might be your disability rights organization or whatever. And so people are generally like, what do you do? And when I was first introducing myself to people, I would um, say that I did a fair amount of divorce work and special needs estate planning work in addition to special education. Now I just say I'm a special ed attorney because it's just easier. <laughs> so, these people were like, oh, you do divorce? I don't know how you do divorce. I hate people. I don't do crazy. And then like later in this meeting, these same people that were like really negative. And, and, and oh, by the way, when I responded like, oh, I actually love it because I feel like there's an opportunity to change. I feel like there's an opportunity to really help people, to really guide people through that process with integrity and compassion and um, kind of hope, like a bright side for hope. That kind of reminds me, sometimes when I talk about this, I pull out in my office my uh, very first branding board, my brand board for my law practice. And it says, shelter of reason. Life is complex. There is joy in the beautiful moments, exhilaration in the exciting opportunities, uncertainty in the tough times. Sometimes we all need a place where things slow down a bit. Give us a chance to breathe a steady hand on the shoulder, letting us know we've got this. And if we don't, our backs are covered. A place where we can get back to living life on our terms, confident, assured, and yes, happy. And that's the way I operate my law firm. And if you're watching on YouTube, you can see the images on this brand board are trust that's like written in lights, a tree, a lighthouse, um, a cat looking in the mirror is a lion, um, and kind of like a Pinteresty board. Oh, there's a beach with, with a lake, it should be an ocean. Um, and something that says, find your silver lining. So it's really kind of this silver lining approach. And my office color scheme is kind of grays and blues that are accepting and, and um, inspire confidence, but also very calming. And so I was kind of trying to explain that to them. And they looked at me like I was some naive, blonde, former kindergarten teacher, like, oh, honey, that's cute. And then later in the lunch, this conversation kind of turned to School people are awful. School people don't care. School people want to save money and cut corners and not teach anybody and not support kids and this like rah kind of thing. And I was like, I couldn't disagree anymore. I was a school person. And yeah, like I always tell people, maybe 2% of the world really is that lazy and, and just plain mean. Maybe they're worn out. Who knows what's in their suitcase of baggage, their baggage of experiences and emotions and trauma and joy that they carry around with them every day. But I think 90% of people are actually wholehearted and good-natured and really want to do well and, and have some kind of different influences on them that cause a disconnect. And solving that disconnect or finding where the disconnect can become a connect, I truly think that's where the answers are. But of course, I don't say it like Brene Brown does. And so I, you know, sat at this lunch with kind of like a, eh, 
I'm totally misunderstood. And that's okay. I'm confident to be me. But what Brene Brown says is, this is rage blame. It is self-righteous, and I would go on to say it is self-centered. It's anger. Why in the heck would we ever think that advocating for children in special education with anger and rage and this blame game and this self-righteousness is effective? That is completely ineffective advocacy. So then what's the solution? If you've heard me talk about Patrick Lencioni's book, The Five Dysfunctions of a Team, kind of tap into what I've said about those strategies, those five dysfunctions, and we're going to think about it from the idea of compassion here. So Brene Brown says the heart of compassion is really acceptance. Now, you've heard me talk so much about empathy, right? Like I have a whole podcast on infusing empathy into your advocacy. We're teaching school teams to accept our children, to look at them with empathy, to provide equitable solutions for them, to really get them, to look at their profiles and to really get our kids, to even love them. When my Jack was going to kindergarten and our school team did not get him and did not want him and didn't have the confidence, I think the real interest was, didn't have the confidence to know, yeah, we can do this. We can, but this is going to be awesome. We can do this. I kept saying, if we get him in the front door on the first day of school, they will love him. That's all we have to do. We just have to get him in the front door because Jack His nature induces love. He gathers people. So I knew that Jack had the secret sauce. I had to be his voice. My husband and I had to be his voice in order to get him to the point where he could draw the people in because he's way more effective at drawing the people in than we are. But the heart of that compassion is in acceptance. And we're trying to teach, to bring the school people to accept our children. So how do we do that? Well, what Brene Brown says is the better we are at accepting ourselves and others, others being the school team, the more compassionate we become. But we can't be compassionate people We can't use compassion if the people around us are walking all over us. Because it's very, very hard to appreciate the other people on the team if they're walking all over us, if we don't feel like we want to be compassionate. So what we have to do is we have to set boundaries. We have to be like, "Uh uh-uh, nope. That's on your terms. This is on my terms. And here's how we're going to do this. We have to set boundaries and we have to hold people accountable. If people are going to walk all over us, we will never be able to use compassion. So I um, have had a, a fair amount of extended family conflict in my life in many different family environments. And that's all I will say about that. But when I was in my um, early, now now remember, I have had life experiences that have made me um, have 
a more, um, arguably a more mature um, outlook than a lot of people, and particularly a lot of people in my community. <laughs> I live with, I live in a small little homogenous community where a lot of people went to high school here. They went to the University of Kentucky. They lived with a high school um, classmate as a roommate, and they came back here, and now they own an insurance company. Okay, so it's like a little um, uh, vanilla. And so in my community, my experiences of being injured when I was a kid, having a vision impairment, um, uh, going away to school, going away to teach, having death threats, having a child with a disability, having a husband with cancer, those things have all helped to shape my perspective and have, um, you know, I, I always say those are perspective building and, and maturity building experiences. So while I haven't um, experienced many years in life, I have experienced many experiences that people oftentimes don't get until they are much older. You know, experiences like burying a parent. I'm sure that that gives you significant empathy. Experiences like burying a child feel like they are done out of time. And so I think all of those are empathy provoking, perspective shifting experiences that make us more wise. And so... Maybe you need to add 10 years on to this, but I'll tell you what my experience was. In my teens, in my late teens, I felt like, well, I'm just going to treat everybody how I wanted to be treated. The golden rule, not the platinum rule. Like, who cares how they want to be treated? I was not mature enough to look at how they wanted to be treated. But I just was going to go out and be me and be the best me that I could be and be like, well, I'm going to treat you how I would want to be treated in this situation and maybe everything will work out. And then in my 20s, once this kind of like conflict started coming up in friendships and in family relationships and, and, and that kind of thing, not in my nuclear little family, I thought, well, what I'm going to do is I'm going to be nice to people. I'm just going to be super nice to people. I'm going to be nice. Like I'm going to be like Switzerland. I'm just going to be nice to people. Well, then what happened was... People, I like, I felt like people didn't see my brain. They didn't see my soul. They saw me as this like puppy dog that was just really nice to people. And so then maybe in like my late 20s, early 30s, I thought, you know what? Here's what I'm going to do. Forget it. I'm not going to think about it. If somebody's nice to me, I'm going to be nice back. If they're not nice to me that day, I'm just going to move on. And so I found myself, you know, one day at a party um, a certain group of women would be like really, really nice. And then at a wedding, I'd be in this circle of people and all of a sudden the circle would close. Somebody would kind of step in front of me and I'm looking at the back of somebody's head like, well, I guess today they aren't being nice. So I'm going to go find somebody else. But guess what? That still felt icky. And so in my early thirties, I was like, you know what? I'm going to narrow down my circle and I'm just going to search for relationships that feel good. I think a lot of information was coming out on toxicity, toxic relationships. And I was like, oh, oh man, yeah, I know a lot of relationships that are toxic. And so I thought, I'm just going to whittle down my circle and I'm going to like kind of stick to myself and stick to my people. But guess what? That still didn't feel good because that felt too easy. Then I was with, only with people that weren't pushing me, people that weren't coming at things from different ideas and different perspectives and different interests. And I thought, well, this isn't all that fun either. 
And then I realized the boundaries. I remember very specifically in a friendship scenario, saying to my husband, what I have to decide is if this friendship means enough to me that I want to preserve it. And if I want to preserve it, then what I have to do is I have to address it. I have to address the conflict and say, I sense that I said something or did something, or I act in a certain way to make you behave this way towards me. And I want to fix it. I want to work through this with you because I value our friendship. And sometimes when I have that thought, I say, no, the friendship doesn't mean enough. I'm going I'm to move on with my life. But lots of times, I find myself saying, yeah, I think this friendship is worth it. Yeah, I think I want to go have that hard conversation. I want to have the conversation, set boundaries because the friendship is worth it and because people are complicated and beautiful. And it took me kind of this progress of like, I'm just gonna be me. I'm gonna be nice to the people that are nice to me. I'm gonna be nice to everybody first. I'm gonna be nice to the people that are nice to me. I'm going to really search for relationships. It took me this evolution to realize that accountability is where it is. So what Brene Brown says about this and the way that we can use this in special education is as follows. The better we are at accepting ourselves and others, the more compassionate we become. And so we have to start by setting boundaries and holding people accountable. How do we do this in special education? I want to give you three ways. The first way is remembering that the IEP team is a team. I've said it a hundred times. We are a team, but you as the parent or you as the teacher or you as the administrator or you as the grandparent, you as the coach, you as you, you have to recognize yourself as a team member. You have to get informed. It is nearly impossible to hold people accountable if you don't know the rules. And so you have to read the books, attend to the programs, find the people, join the networks, take the trainings. You can't hold people accountable if you don't know the law, if you don't know the special education practice, if you haven't researched the curriculum, if you don't know how to communicate, how to advocate, you can't be part of a team effectively because you can't hold people accountable on that team. The accountability is super important. That's where we get to compassion. We have to get people to be compassionate towards us by being compassionate to them, and that is going to benefit the child. I had to get people to understand that we were going to hold them accountable I had to utilize strong advocacy, which had objective concepts, the law, the teaching practices, in order to get people to understand, oh, she's serious, to pave the way for Jack Barlow to get to that front door to provoke the love that then got him acceptance in his school community. I didn't know I was doing it this way, but that is how I did it. Number two ideological conflict. That is what Lencioni talks about in the five dysfunctions of the team. We must, must, must address conflict in order to promote this ideology. Ideological conflict 
holding people accountable. Speaking up if you have different experiences or opinions, that is the only way to get the team to have effective change. I do this all the time in my law practice. My dad and I practice totally differently. My dad's like an old school litigator who kind of like believes everything the client says, takes it um, totally to the grave. Like just, you know, he doesn't pound his fist on the podium, but he's like an old school litigator. The client says something and he's like, yeah, let's go with that. And I kind of push my clients. I kind of, I ask questions. I wanna know, I, I push my clients to thinking about things differently. So I handled a case for my dad a couple years ago. And I called my dad and said, hey, this happened, this happened, this happened. And my dad said, oh yeah, that, that guy, he is a he is a fill in the blank. Let's say it is, um, yes, our client has a drinking problem. Okay, our client is a drunk. Well, I didn't think that was really the answer. And in this particular case, it wasn't a drinking problem. But in this particular case, the court had already set out a, a policy, a strategy to determine if this supposition was true. And I did not think it was true. So I advised the client, yeah, go ahead and do it, whatever it was. You know, if it's, if it's drinking, let's say, go ahead and do the alcohol testing, random alcohol testing, because I don't think you're a drunk. Like I've asked enough questions. I've pushed this guy enough that I'm like, yeah, you know, I think go ahead and do it. Time will tell. If I'm right, if it's not really an issue, or if the court is right, or the other party, you know, is right, and there actually is a problem. And I had to say to my dad, I completely disagree. And this is why I advise to the client this way. Because in order for my dad and I to be a part of a team and to advise this client effectively, we had to come to some agreement because we were a team. And so I wasn't gonna be happy in the team if I went along with my dad's supposition that our client is a fill in the blank. And my dad wasn't gonna be happy if I was approaching it with total empathy, like, oh, you know, sunshine and roses, let's see how this goes. And so we had to come to an agreement and we did in that case. Just yesterday, I got Jack's triennial OT evaluation. And the OT said, Jack can't follow one-step directions and he almost always misses whole group instruction. Well, I don't find either of those things to be true in Jack's home and community. Now, if that's happening at school, which I really don't think it is, I would be quite upset. I don't think it is. I think this OT just hasn't spent enough time with him. She's new. I don't think she's talked to the teachers enough. I don't think she really knows what's going on. And so I don't wanna jump down her throat because I just have a lot of questions to ask. But what I said is, that is not how things are going at home and in the community. I'm, I'm the general contractor of home and the community. And that is not what we see at home and in the community. And so I want to push you to actually ask more questions about what this looks like. And if it actually looks like he's not following one step directions and he is generally missing whole group instruction because of his, I don't know, distraction or um, he's very auditorily distracted. So I suppose it's possible, but that would be a humongous regression. 
And so if it is, we need to get together as a team to see how we can modify the environment to make the instruction more equitably accessible for Jack. That is our job. And so I'm gonna say to you, you can't just say, oh, he's missing instruction and let me be like, oh, okay, mm-hmm. No, because you've now identified a problem and I'm gonna push our team to solve that problem because that is a big problem. I wanted to say another cuss word, but I already said bullshit. Okay, I'll say it. That is a big ass problem. <laughs> and so I could get in this blame game of you're new, you don't know him, you haven't spent enough time with the teachers. But instead I look at those things objectively and say maybe she just doesn't know him. And so at his meeting, I'm gonna ask the teachers, do you see this? Do you see this as a problem? Has he regressed that much? He has regressed because of the pandemic, he has. And, and if he has regressed, then we get compensatory education and I don't have to say like, you need to pay us money. If he's regressed, we get comp ed. But I don't think that's what's happening because I believe that our team would tell me, hey, Ashley, he's missing everything that we say because it's now March. And I think I should have known by now. So number two, facing that conflict because you are on a team and you have an obligation to move the team forward too. But see how we go back to the number one, know your stuff, know your stuff for the teamwork. I have to know about compensatory education to hold them accountable, to hold their, what do they say, feet to the flame, feet to the fire, whatever it is, to hold them accountable. And number three, communication. <laughs> you knew it was coming. If you are going to maintain these relationships, if you are going to continue to hold people accountable, and if you want to do it well, you have to communicate and you have to communicate regularly. You have to continue to stay in front of the team. You have to set the expectation that you are going to communicate and that you are going to expect communication back. I expect I'm going to say this and I expect that you are going to respond. We are going to continue a conversation about the child. That is not only upholding your end of the bargain, but it is helping the team to uphold their end of the bargain. So ask questions, share your experiences, talk about what's happening at home in the community, continue to communicate. It is possible that I did not communicate well enough with this OT. I have to admit that some things have come home that I've been like, okay, we don't need that and just moved on with it. She sent me lowercase letters to on like little sticker dots to put on the keyboard because she said that he was having a hard time um, finding if he's copying from um, a sentence to type it into a computer, he's having a hard time finding the letters. Well, that doesn't happen at home. And I have to admit that I didn't say that doesn't happen at home. We don't need these dots. And how are you doing this? How can I help you to get him to do what he's at home at school? Because I was just like, oh, that's dumb. Move on with my life. And I probably should have communicated that. Maybe she doesn't know about us. Maybe she doesn't know about our expectations of Jack. Maybe she doesn't know about us because communicating with his OT has not been a priority for me. And so maybe I didn't communicate well enough or often enough or effectively enough for her to understand the boundaries that we put on Jack, the expectations that we put on Jack, and maybe she is not pushing Jack. That's another possibility.
Okay, so those are the three tips. Teamwork, ideological conflict, communication. I wanna say before we close this out that I know this is hard. I know it's hard to lean into the conflict. I know it's hard to know not only what to say, to not only know the law, to not only know the teaching practices, but then to know how to say it and how to be comfortable in that discomfort of conflict. But what's the alternative? The alternative is completely ineffective advocacy. That blame game, that too busy to care attitude. So Brene Brown says in the book, and I read this to you, when we talk ourselves into disliking someone so that we're more comfortable holding them accountable, we're priming ourselves for that shame and blame game. And so the solution, friends, is not to be like, the school people are bad, the school people are dumb, the school people this. Or if you're a school person, the parents are dumb, the parents are bad, the parents are this. The solution is to focus on the child, to focus on the issue, to focus on the concept and not on the people. That's how you love the people. That's how you demonstrate compassion. I think that's the solution. I would love to hear from you on this because I feel so passionately about it. This was way longer than I anticipated. So if you've made it this far, congratulations for hanging in there. I hope this is helpful for you. I'll see you next week, same time, same place.